This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Cowboy by Thomas McGuane. The old fella had several peculiarities to him, most of which I've forgotten. He was one of the few fellas I ever heard of who would actually jump up and down on his hat if he got mad enough. The story was chosen by Sam Lipsight, the author of The Ask, Homeland, and other novels. His latest story, Deniers, is in the May 2nd issue of the magazine. Hi, Sam. Hi. So McGuane published his first novel, The Sporting Club, in the late 60s, and he's put out 11 books since then, including last year's novel, Driving on the Rim, and the collection Gallatin Canyon, which includes the story that we're looking at today. When did you start reading him? Well, I I remember discovering him in my late teens. I came upon a a copy of The Bushwhacked Piano, and uh, that book really excited me and gave me sort of a sense of the possibilities of fiction at that time and still today. So uh, I, then I just grabbed everything I could and followed his career. And as he wrote more books, I read them. And uh, so I've been a, a big fan for a long time. Did your parents have the book kicking around? Was that where you found it? No, it was one of those vintage contemporaries, yeah. if you remember. And I was a kid and I was 16 in a bookstore and I just I saw it and it had a cool cover. And I <laughs> didn't really know anything else except it's a novel with a cool cover. And mm-hmm. uh, I bought it. That was it. And what was it about McGuane that, that so appealed to your 16-year-old self? I think that it was uh, the fact that he was writing fiction that was funny but was also serious about sentence-making and, and language and had this kind of uh, countercultural view on, on, on the world and, you know, this, this kind of dark, cynical, funny take on, on modern America. And, you know, it still appeals to me. Uh-huh. Now, you... Grew up in New Jersey and New York. I did. And um, a lot of McGuane's work, including this story, is uh, set in Montana on a ranch. What is it that draws you to this particular story? A lot of his work, as you said, takes place in states and areas that I've, I've never been to. I, I don't think I've ever been on a ranch. <laughs> I don't, even in this story that, that I'm about to read, I, uh, I really don't know what he's talking about half the time. <laughs> And I I kind of enjoy that because then I can sit back with the music of the piece. And you figure it out as you, as you go. And as, like all great fiction writers, he teaches you how to read the story as, as the story proceeds. But uh, it always felt strange to me because I don't have any connection to the land that he, he writes about. I don't have connection to that way of life. It doesn't speak to me in any autobiographical sense. It's just the music and the stance and the authority. That's That's always what's mesmerized me about about McGuane's work and the comedy. He's just incredibly funny. Right. So it was always, I always felt a little weird as a suburban kid in New Jersey, <laughs> really feeling myself either a guy in Key West or right. somebody in Montana or somebody with a hard bitten life in, in a Western state. But, you know, it, it actually was a great way to, to kind of enter somebody's fictional universe and, and not worry about how it might reflect my current reality. The story Cowboy, which you're going to read, is told in the first person in sort of Western ranch dialect. Do you think there's anything else that people listening should be aware of before they hear it? Just that, you know, if anything sounds funny, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> if anything is funny, it's, it's Tom McGuane. <laughs> okay. uh, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Sam Lipsight reading Cowboy by Thomas McGuane. 
The old fella makes me go into the house in my stocking feet. The old lady's in a big chair next to the window. In fact, the whole room is full of big chairs, but she's only in one of them. Though big as she is, she could fill up several. The old man says, I found this one in the loose horse pen at the sale yard. She says, what's he supposed to be? He says, supposed to be a cowboy. What's he doing in the loose horses? I says, I was looking for one that would ride. You was in the wrong pen, son, the old man says. Them's canners. They're going to France in cardboard boxes. Soon as they get a steel bolt in the head, the big old gal laughs in her chair. Now I'm sore. There's five in there broke to death. I rode him with nothing but binder twine. It don't make a shit, the old man says. Ever one of them is going to France. The old lady don't believe me. How'd you get in them loose horses to ride? I went in there at night. The old lady says, You one crazy cowboy, go in there in the dark. Them Bronx kick your teeth down your throat. I suppose you tried them bareback? Nah, I drugged the saddle I usually ride at the Rose Bowl parade. You got a horse for that? I got trigger. We unstuffed him. The old lady addresses the old man. He's got a mouth on him, this much we know. Maybe he can tell us what good he is. I says, I'm a cowboy. You're a out-of-work cowboy. It's a dying way of life. She's about like me. She's wondering if this ranch is supposed to be some kind of welfare agency for cowboys. I've had enough. You're the dumb hunyaker drove me out here. I think that'll be the end of it, but the old lady says, Don't get huffy. You got the job. You against conversation or something? We get outside and the old bitch says, You drawed lucky there, son. That last deal could have pissed her off. It didn't make me know never mind if it did or didn't. She hadn't been well. Used to she was sweet as pudding. I'm sorry for that. We don't have health. We don't have nothing. She must have been afflicted something terrible because she was ugly morning, noon, and night for as long as she lasted. She'd pick a fight over nothing and the old some bitch got the worst of it. I felt sorry for him. Little slack as he cut me. Had a hundred seventy-five sweet-tempered horned Herefords and fifteen sleepy bulls. Shipped the calves all over for hybrid vigor, mostly to the south. Had some go clear to Florida. A Hereford that still had its horns was a walking miracle, and the old some bitch had a smart little deal going. I soon learned to give him credit for such things, and the old lady barking commands off on the sofa weren't no slouch neither. Anybody else seen their books might have said they could be wintering in Phoenix. They didn't have no bunkhouse, just a leisure-life mobile home that had lost its wheels about thirty years ago, and they had it positioned by the door of the barn so it would be convenient for the hired man to stagger out at all hours and fight breech births and scours and any other disorders sent us by the cow gods. We had some doozies. One heifer got pregnant and her calf was near as big as she was. Had to reach in with a saw and take it out in pieces. When we threw the head out on the ground... She turned to it and lowed like it was her baby. Everything a cow does is designed to turn it into meat as fast as possible so that somebody can eat it. It's a terrible life. The old bitch and I got along good. We got through calving and got to see them pears and bulls run out onto the new grass. Nothing like seeing all that meat feel a little temporary joy. Then we bladed out the corrals and watched them dry under the spring sun at long last. 
Only mishap was when the manure spreader threw a rock and knocked me senseless and I drove the rig into an irrigation ditch. The old bitch never said a word but chained up and pulled us out with his Ford. We led his cavy out of the hills afoot with two buckets of sweet feed. Had a little of everything, including a blue roan I fancied, but he said it was a handcock and bucked like the national finals in Las Vegas, kicking out behind and squalling and was just a man-killer. Stick to the bays, he said. The West was won on a bay horse. He picked out three bays, had a keg of shoes, all ones and aughts, and I shod them best I could. Three geldings with nice manners stood good to shoe. About all you could say about the others was that they had four legs each, and a couple, all white-marked from saddle galls and years of hard work, looked like no more summers after this. They'd been rode many a long mile. We chased them back into the hills, and the three shod ones whinnied and fretted. Back to work, the old bitch says to them. We shod three because one was going to pack a ton of fencing supplies. Barbed wire, smooth wire, steel T-posts, old, wore-out sunflower fence stretchers that could barely grab onto the wire, and staples. And we was at it a good little while where the elk had knocked miles of it down, or the cedar finally give out and had to be replaced by steel. That was where I found out that the old bitch's last good time was in Korea, where the officers at the front would yell over the radio, "'Come on up here and die!' Said the enemy was coming in waves. Tells me all this while the stretcher is pulling that wire squealing through the staples. The bitch was a tough old bastard. They killed a pile of us and we killed a pile of them. We hauled the mineral horse back too in panniers, white salt and iodine salt. He didn't have no use for blocks, so we hauled it in sacks and poured it into the troughs he had on all those bald hilltops where the wind would blow away the flies. Most of his so-called troughs were truck tires nailed onto anything flat, plywood, old doors, and such like, but they worked good. A cow can put her tongue anywhere in a tire and get what she needs, and you can drag one of them flat things with your horse if you need to move it. Most places we salted had old buffalo wallers where them buffalo wallered. They done wallered their last, had to get out of the way for the cow and the man on the bay horse. I'd been rustling my own grub in the leisure life for quite some time when the old lady said it was time for me to eat with the white folks. This was not necessarily a good thing. The old lady's knee replacements had begun to fail, and both me and the old some bitch was half afraid of her. She cooked as good as ever, but she was a bomb waiting to go off, standing bow-legged at the stove and talking ugly about how much she did for us. When she talked, the old bitch would move his mouth as though he was saying the same words, and we had to keep from giggling, which wasn't hard. For if the old lady caught us at that, there'd have been hell to pay. Both the old bitch and the old lady was heavy smokers, to where an oxygen bottle was in sight. So they joined a smoke-enders deal the Lutherans had, and this required them to put all their butts in a jar and wear the jar around their necks on a string. The old son bitch liked this okay because he could just tap his ass right under his chin and not get it on the truck seat. But the more that thing filled up and hung around her neck, the meaner the old lady got. She had no idea the old son bitch was cheating and setting his jar on the wood pile when we was working outside. She was just more honest than him, and in the end she'd give up smoking and he smoked away, except he wasn't allowed to smoke in the house no more, nor buy ready-maids, because the new tax made them too expensive and she wouldn't let him take it out of the cows which come first. She said it was just a vice, and if he was half the man she thought he was, he'd give it up as a bad deal. 
You could have a long and happy old age, she said, real sarcastic-like. One day, me and the old bitches in the house hauling soot out of the fireplace on account of they had a chimbley fire last winter. Over the mantel is a picture of a beautiful woman in a red dress with her hair piled on top of her head. The old bitch tells me that's the old lady before she joined the motorcycle gang. Oh? Them motorcycle gangs, he says. All they do is eat and work on their motorcycles. They taught her to smoke, too, but she's shut of that. Probably outlive us all. Looks to me she can live as long as she wants. And if she ever wants to box you, tell her no. She'll knock you on your ass, I guarantee it. Throw you a damn haymaker, son. I couldn't understand how he could be so casual-like about the old lady being in a motorcycle gang. When we was smoking in the leisure life, I asked him about it. That's when I found out that him and the old lady was brother and sister. I guess that explained it. If your sister wants to join a motorcycle gang, that's her business. He said she even had a tattoo, hounds from hell, with a dog shooting flames out of his nostrils and riding a Harley. That picture on the mantle kind of stayed in my mind, and I asked the old bitch if his sister had ever had a boyfriend. Well, yes, quite a few, he told me, quite a damn few. Our folks run them off. They was just after the land. He was going all around the baler, hitting the zerks with his grease gun. I had a lady friend myself. She'd do anything, cook, gangbusters with a snorty horse, and not too damn hard on the eyes. Sis runner off. Said she was just after the land. If she was, I never could see it. Anyway, went on down the road long time ago. Fall come around, and when we brought the cavy down, two of them old-timers who'd worked so hard was lame. One was stifled, one was sweenied, and both had crippling quarter cracks. I thought they needed to be at the loose horse sale, but the old bitch says, no mounts of mine is going to feed no Frenchman, and that was that. So we made a hole, led the old-timers to the edge, and shot them with an elk rifle. First one didn't know what hit him. Second one heard the shot and saw his buddy fall, and the old bitch had to chase him around to kill him. Then he sent me down the hole to get the halters back. Lifting those big heads was some chore. I enjoyed eating in the big house that whole summer until the sister started giving me come-hither looks. They was fairly limited except those days when the old bitch was in town after supplies. Then she dialed it up and kind of brushed me every time she went past the table. There was always something special on the town days, a pie maybe. I tried to think about the picture on the mantel, but it was impossible, even though I knew it might get me out of the leisure life once and for all. She was getting more and more wound up while I was pretending to enjoy the food or going crazy over the pie. But she didn't buy it, called me a queer and sent me back to the trailer to make my own meals. By calling me a queer, she more or less admitted what she'd been up to, and I think that embarrassed her, because she covered up by roaring at everyone and everything, including the poor old bitch who had no idea what had gone sideways while he was away. It was two years before she made another pie, and then it was once a year on my birthday. She made me five birthday pies in all, sand cherry, every one of them. I broke the catch cult, which I didn't know was no cult, as he was the biggest snide in the cavy. He was four, and it was time. I just got around him for a couple of days, then saddled him gently as I could. The offside stirrup scared him, and he looked over at it, but that was all it was to saddling. I must have had a burst of courage, because next minute I was on him. That was okay, too. I told the old bitch to open the corral gate, and we sailed away. 
The wind blew his tail up under him, and he thought about bucking but rejected the idea, and that was about all there was to breaking Ollie, for that was his name. Once I'd rode him two weeks, he was safe for the old bitch, who plumb loved this new horse and complimented me generously for the job I'd did. We had three hard winters in a row, then lost so many calves to scours we changed our calving grounds. The old bitch just come out one day and looked at where he'd calved out for fifty years and said, The ground's no good. We're moving. So we spent the summer building a new corral way off down the creek. When we're finished, he says, I meant to do this when I got back from overseas, and now it's finished and I'm practically done for, too. Whoever gets the place next will be glad his calves don't shit themselves into the next world like mine done. Neither one of us had a back that was worth a damn, and the least we could do was get rid of the square baler and quit hefting them man-killing five-wire bales. We got a round baler and a Dewey's machine that let us pick up a bale from the truck without laying a finger on it. We'd tell stories and smoke in the cab on those cold winter days and roll out a thousand pounds of hay while them old-time horned Herefords followed the truck. That's when I let him find out I'd done some time. I figured you must have been in the Crowbar Hotel. How's that? Well, you're a pretty good hand. What's a pretty good hand doing trying loose horses in the middle of the night at some podunk sale yard? Folks hang on to a pretty good hand, and nobody was hanging on to you. You want to tell me what you'd done? I'd been with the old bitch for three years and out of jail the same amount of time. I wasn't afraid to tell him what I'd done, because I had started to trust him, but I sure didn't want him telling nothing to his sister. I told him I rustled some yearlings, and he chuckled like he understood entirely. I had rustled some yearlings, all right, but that's not what I went up for. The old man paid me in cash, or rather the old lady did, since she handled anything like that. They never paid into workman's comp, and there was no reason to go to the records. They didn't even have my name right. You tell people around here your name is Shane, and they'll always believe you. The important thing is I was working my tail off for that old bitch, and he knew it. Nothing else mattered, even the fact that we'd come to like each other. After all, this was a goddamn ranch. The old fella had several peculiarities to him, most of which I've forgotten. He was one of the few fellas I ever heard of who would actually jump up and down on his hat if he got mad enough. You could imagine what his hat looked like. One time he did it because I let the swather get away from me on a hill and bent it all to hell. Another time a Mormon tried to run down his breeding program to get a better deal on some replacement heifers, and I'll be damned if the old bitch didn't throw that hat down and jump on it, right in front of the Mormon, causing the Mormon to get into his Buick and ease on down the road without another word. One time when we was driving ring shanks into corral poles I hit my thumb and tried jumping on my hat, but the old bitch gave me such an odd look I never tried it again. The old lady died sitting down. I went in, and there she was, sitting down, and she was dead. After the first wave of grief, the old bitch and me fretted about rigor mortis and not being able to move her in that seated position. So we stretched her onto the couch and called the mortician, and he called the coroner, and for some reason the coroner called the ambulance, which caused the old bitch to state, It don't do you no never mind to tell nobody nothing. Of course he was right. Once the funeral was behind us, I moved out of the leisure life, partly for comfort, and partly because the old bitch falled apart after his sister passed, which I never would have suspected. Once she's gone, he says, he's all that's left of his family and he's alone in life, and about then he notices me and tells me to get my stuff out of the leisure life and move in with him. 
We rode through the cattle pretty near every day year-round, and he come to trust me enough to show how his breeding program went, with culls and breedbacks and outcrosses and replacements, and took me to bull sales and showed me what to expect in a bull and which ones were correct and which were sorry. One day we's looking at a pen of yearling bulls on this outfit near Luther, and he can't make up his mind, and he says he wished his sister was with him, and he starts snuffling and says she had an eye on her wouldn't quit. So I stepped up and picked three bulls out of that pen, and he quit snuffling and said, damn if I didn't have an eye on me too. That was the beginning of our partnership. One whole year I was the cook, and one whole year he was the cook, and back and forth like that, but never at the same time. Whoever was cook would change when the other fella got sick of his recipes, and ever once in a while a new recipe would come in the agri news, like that corn chowder with the sliced hot dogs. I even tried a pie one time, but it just made him lonesome for days gone by, so we forgot about desserts, which was probably good for our health, as most sweets call for gobbing in the white sugar. The sister never let him have a dog, cause she had a cat and she thought a dog would get the cat. It wasn't much of a cat, anyhow, but it lived a long time, outlived the old lady by several moons. After it passed on, we took it out to the burn barrel, and the first thing the old sumbitch said was, We're getting a dog. It took him that long to realize that his sister was gone. Tony was a border collie we got as a pup from a couple in Miles City that raised them. You could cup your hands and hold Tony when we got him. But he grew up in one summer and went to work, and we taught him down, here, come by, way to me, and hold him, all in one year or less, because Tony would just stay on his belly and study you with his eyes until he knew exactly what you wanted. Tony helped us gather, mother up pears, and separate bulls, and he lived in the house for many a good year and kept us entertained with all his tricks. Finally, Tony grew old and died. We didn't take it so good, especially the old some bitch who said he couldn't foresee enough summers for another dog. Plus, that was the year he couldn't get on a horse no more, and he wasn't about to work no stock dog afoot. There was still plenty to do, and most of it fell to me. After all, this was a goddamn ranch. The time had come to tell him why I went to jail and what I did, which was rob that little store at Absaroki and shoot the proprietor, though he didn't die. I had no idea why I did such a thing, then or now. I led the crew on the prison ranch for a number of years and turned out many a good hand. They weren't near about to let me loose until there was a replacement good as me who'd stay a while. So I trained up a murderer from Columbia Falls, could rope, break horses, keep vaccine records, fence, and irrigate. Once the warden seen how good he was, they paroled me out and turned it all over to the new man, who was never getting out. The old some bitch could give a shit less when I told him my story. I could have told him all this years before when he first hired me, for all he cared. He was a big believer in what he saw with his own eyes. I don't think I ever had the touch with customers the old some bitch had. They'd come from all over looking for horned Herefords and talking hybrid vigor, which I may or may not have believed. They'd ask what we had, and I'd point to the corrals and say, Go look for yourself. Some would insist on seeing the old some bitch, and I'd tell them he was in bed which was pretty near the only place you could find him now that he'd begun to fail. Then the state got wind of his condition and took him to town. I went to see him there right regular, but it just upset him. He couldn't figure out who I was and got frustrated because he knew I was somebody he was supposed to know. And then he failed even worse. The doctors told me it was just better if I didn't come round. 
The neighbors claimed I was personally responsible for the spread of spurge, Dalmatian toad flax, and knapweed. They got to the authorities involved, and it was pretty clear that I was the weed they had in mind. If they could get the court to appoint one of their relatives' ranch custodian while the old bitch was in storage, they'd get all that grass for free till he was in a pine box. The authorities came in all sizes and shapes, but when they were through, they let me take one saddle horse, one saddle, the clothes on my back, my hat, and my slicker. I rode that horse clear to the sale yard, where they tried to put him in the loose horses because of his age. I told him I was too set in my ways to start feeding Frenchmen and rode off toward Idaho. There's always an opening for a cowboy, even an old bitch like me if he can halfway make a hand. That was Sam Lipsight reading Cowboy by Thomas McGuane, which was first published in The New Yorker in 2005 and is collected in Gallatin Canyon, published by Vintage Contemporaries. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Sam, this is a story that starts off incredibly funny, told in this tough guy vernacular. And then by the end, it's, it's really pulling at your heartstrings in unexpected ways. I looked at McGuane's Paris Review interview from 1985, in which he said he was looking for ways to avoid trivializing the serious stuff without undermining the comedy of it. Do you think that's what he's doing here? Yeah, I think he succeeds very well yeah. at that here. And that kind of deadpan, uninflected and direct delivery, that sort of flattens everything in a way so that we get tragedy and the small, humorous aspects of ranch life and just the the ways people think about their pasts, all in the kind of same register. It gives us both the comedy and, I think, the, the real kind of emotional ending. It's tricky to do, but do you think you can separate out the authorial voice of the story from the narrator's voice? I mean, to me, I don't know where I pick it up, but I just feel that McGuane has so much affection for all three of these characters, which is quite separate from the affection that the narrator comes to feel. I think that's true. And yeah, that just takes a lot of mastery yeah. to pull to pull that off. And it's also it's a strange story for McGuane in that there aren't that many written in, in the first person, especially in the voice of someone perhaps not as educated as Tom McGuane or or with the facility with language that, that we've seen in other books and other stories. So here he's impersonating. It's an act of impersonation. Yeah. Um a character who who doesn't have the skill to defend himself that a lot of other McGuane characters might have. Yeah, there's ventriloquism, but also somehow he manages to make this very sort of laconic drawl poetic in a way. 
oh, and that's, you know, he really accomplishes that in the names of things in this story, I think. As I was saying earlier, I don't know what anything, I don't really know what's going on (laughs) in terms of the tasks they must complete. I had to use a lot of of dictionary time when I was editing it. But but you can tell McGuane is both relishing telling us about how a ranch works and what are the jobs people do, but he's also, I think, really reveling in the language. Do you think when we find out what the narrator's actual crime was, do you think we're meant to feel differently about him? No, I think we're, I think we're supposed to feel the same way the, uh, the old some bitch feels. Which is, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We've watched all of these years go by, and we've okay. seen this, this narrator's dedication to the ranch and to this old couple. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not a couple, to, this, to these yeah, old siblings. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that line that he was a great believer in what he saw with his own eyes. And mm-hmm. I think that's really reflects back to what a reader might do, which is just to, once we've witnessed all of these years and all of this loyalty yeah. and all of this hard work, we don't care right. either. What would you say is the purpose of this story? It's not Brokeback Mountain, but it seems to me what Tom is trying to get at is the love that grows up between these two men. Yeah. It's a love that can speak its name, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Well, it can't because they're too, they're tough guys. They can't say it. Right. But they, I mean, I think that they show it constantly. Yeah. Just in the way they work together. And there are a few moments where some gratitude is expressed one way or the other. Well, they really develop a kind of marriage. I mean, they cook for each other. Sure. They live together. They have a pet together. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, at the end, what happens is, I suppose, what happens to a lot of couples who don't get married and then one dies. That's a the, very good point. Yeah, the living one no is dispossessed. There's no legal protection for the cowboy at the, yeah, yeah. At the end. Um, and he's just sort of sent off. With nothing to his name. So speaking of Brokeback Mountain, how would you compare this to an Annie Proust story? You know, she covers a lot of the same territory and the same landscape and similar types of characters. And yet this voice for me is very different. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is the comedy mm-hmm. makes it makes it distinct in a way. I mean, there's humor, of course, in Annie Proust, but there's this distinctive McGuane vein of interplay between characters and also in sort of sussing out the world. And there are moments when, you know, the cowboy might not have had educational opportunities. He spent some time in jail. But um, he's pretty savvy in the way he can kind of process the world and yeah. and see how people are behaving and for what reason and when the fix is in and, and all of that. That great line, I was the weed. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just about a, a certain register of uh wakefulness to to the world that i think you know whether the character is a you know phd dropout or a an unlettered cowboy it kind of shines through in, in mcguane's yeah, work yeah. The, the intelligence i i read in in one interview mcguane said as you get older you should get impatient with showing off in literature it's easier to settle for blazing light than to find a language for the real. Whether you're a writer or a bird dog trainer, life should winnow the superfluous language. The real thing should become plain. You should go straight to what you know best. And that seems to me that's what he's what he is doing here. He certainly does do that here. It's it's far more stripped down, and he gets to a place of real beauty because of that. On the other hand. I also like the early albums. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with the the pyrotechnics, and yeah. and that you know that excited me as well. And he remains an, an incredibly exciting writer, and he has changed. He's yeah. changed a lot, and I guess that's kind of a sign of a, of a great career when you can see somebody mm-hmm. go through that trajectory. It would be silly for him to be trying to write ninety two in the shade right now, right? And he's doing 
kind of deeper work, but yeah. I don't want to dismiss what I think are some really funny and exciting novels from, from the 60s and 70s. As we said, your fictional territory lies very far from Montana, but I sense that in your work there's a similar confluence or, or conflagration of humor and emotion, yeah, bittersweetness. I mean, Do you think that he was an influence on you in that way? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, that's probably why I picked him. You know, Cowboy is a story that, that I really love since Gallatin Canyon. I guess I couldn't love it before then. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I've been sort of listening to McGuane, you know, for many, many years now. So I think that you can't but help say that he's some sort of influence. Well, thank you. Thank you. Sam Lipsight's latest novel is called The Ask, and it's published by Picador. You can read a new story by Thomas McGuane in the April 25th issue of the magazine, and you can hear him read it in the tablet edition of that issue, available in the App Store. Subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes Store. Just do a search for New Yorker. And let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.